Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. I read an article in The Guardian this morning. It's entitled Writers Retreat, Seven Authors on Their Outdoor Escapes from Lockdown. And it's seven writers talking about how they're re-energizing in nature. One of them goes kayaking. Another one goes tree climbing. One of them swims in the sea. Um, There's a man who runs. There's a woman who paddle boards. There's a man who rides his motorcycle. And another woman who enjoys bird watching. And it made me think how important nature is in Zen. And what nature can do for us if we can understand nature and our role in it. Oh, it is so important to get away from our lives of concrete and plastic and little metal tubes we run around in and go out and be with nature. It's been so much uh, a source of wisdom and inspiration to Zen teachers for thousands of years. We used to be closer to nature before our modern life. But uh, now, for some reason, we think we're smarter than nature, and it's the other way around. Nature has so much to teach us. The rocks, in many ways, the mountains, are smarter than we are, and uh, we need to learn to listen to them again. I I know I'm sounding like a hippie, but I mean it. (laughs) Are you saying that you're dumber than a rock? Yes. Yes, we are, in many ways, dumber than a rock, and uh, I'll explain that. You know. A rock does not go around comparing itself to other rocks. A rock does uh, not worry that uh, it's uh, where it's rolling. A rock just sits there still and lets the rain and the snow and uh, whatever happens come upon it. Rocks are wise, my friend. Is it fair to say that rocks have Buddha nature? Uh, Dogen uh, thought so in a way. You know, we, we th- we're, we're big on the sentient beings. Those are the beings that are self-reflective. And people sometimes uh, think that uh, Buddhists thought that there's a life force in all things. We were kind of ambiguous about it. But I believe there is a life force in all things. The rocks are not separate from us. We're not separate from the earth. So, the, yeah, the rocks are, in a sense, alive. Now, are they alive like we are? No. but Does uh, our big brains uh, make us always smarter than the rocks? No. In some ways, it's made us, if I may say, dumber than the rocks. (laughs) A a quick definition. I use the term Buddha nature. Um, It's a pretty common term in Zen and in Buddhism. Can you explain exactly what that means? Yeah, well, Buddha nature means that we all have the potential to be Buddha within us. But it's also been uh, taken to mean that we all are Buddha already. And Buddha means everything. And since everything includes the stars and the sun and the rocks and the trees and the mountains, yes, they are Buddha nature and so are we. We just don't know it and the rocks don't need to know it because the rocks are just rocks. And they're, (laughs) you know, we worry about being better people. I've never met a rock that worries about being a better rock. 
That's why they are wiser than we are. Yes, but do you speak rock? Uh, (laughs) A rock does not need to speak. A rock... How would you know what a rock is thinking? A rock does not need to say anything. Only people (laughs) need to... uh, I've never heard a rock that has a podcast. This is true. Good point. But I needed, I never knew a rock that needed to be told anything either. Yeah. So Dogen, back in the 13th century, one of uh, his texts is the Mountains and Rivers Sutras, and, and that's really quite interesting. It's quite right. metaphysical. But he didn't know that at a quantum level, rocks are actually full of energy and are actually moving at a very low level. We look at them as rocks and we think, we just think of the idea of a rock as something inert, but it's really not. Well, it's made of the same star stuff that we are. Uh, its uh, chemical makeup is only uh, slightly different from our own. It's uh, it's part of this earth, and we are part of this earth. And uh, Dogen realized that it's all one thing. Yeah, we are sounding like hippies, but I mean all this stuff, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the rocks are... We have not partaken any recreational drugs before this podcast. Well, speak for yourself. No, no, we have not. We, I do not approve of okay. that. That was a bad joke. Uh, I no. am not stoned, but um, bum. You got it? Okay. <laughs> but uh, the rocks, the mountains are in many ways wiser. Why is a mountain wiser? Uh, Has a a mountain ever compared itself to another mountain? Does the mountain ever ask itself where it ends and the ground begins? Does the sea and the mountain ever get into a dispute? You know, they sometimes, the, the, the sea will encroach upon the hills and wear them away. I've never heard them actually, though, get into a, a dispute, a territorial dispute like human beings will. In many ways, the uh, rest of the earth uh, remembers things that we have forgotten. Even the animals in the jungle, you know, that compete and fight, and it's dog-eat-dog, and it's very vicious. I know, I know that animals will want to protect themselves, but I don't think that they ponder the existential meaning of it all, like our big brains force us to. We have to look back at nature and learn again to be simple. And what's simpler? than a rock. I find that when I'm outside, and I'm going to use the term nature loosely because I have a garden that's, I don't know, I think it's about a third of an acre. And if I sit in the garden and I'm looking at the trees, the the little dinosaurs flying around going to the feeders, um, there is this feeling of interconnectedness with nature and with other things that comes. Once you just let yourself drop away all the ideas of I'm human and this is all different. I find it very easy if I'm walking, if I'm if I'm sitting by the edge of a river, I find it very common that nature just kind of washes over me and allows me to feel as if I'm part of it. Well, there is a reason that it all feels interconnected in part. And that's because it's all interconnected in part. <laughs> you are nature. We think that we're standing apart from nature, but we, you know, even a biologist will tell you we're part of the same systems. We're part of the same ecological relationships. But more than that, the Buddhist sees it all as one thing. The leaf is not separate from the tree, which is not separate from the forest, which is not separate from the ground. But we are not separate from the trees. We are not separate from the water or the sun we depend on. We're not separate from any of it, though we try to pretend we are. And we lock ourselves in our concrete buildings and uh, get in our urban areas that uh, where we have uh, manicured lawns to pretend that we're better than nature. No. We are not. 
We are as much nature as the worms and the birds. All of it. Yes, but what you just said is interesting because I don't have that feeling when I'm sitting here in my home office. Um, when I'm sitting in the living room, when I'm in an office building or a train station, I don't have that same feeling of interconnectedness. Whereas once I can feel the wind and smell the flowers and hear the birds, everything changes. Well, that's why it is important to go out. And even in the old days, when you would think the Zen folks were already living in their mountains, monasteries, they would go out by themselves sometimes to build a hut, to be alone in nature. Uh, to be with other people is wonderful, but sometimes just to be by yourself. And it's an experience, it's one of the experiences we can have in this age of COVID. It's perfectly safe. You can get your own tent. My wife was telling me that it's becoming big here in Japan. Uh, it's called, uh, I think, uh, uni camping, where people now are, instead of going out with groups, you go out by yourself to a campground and you in your own tent and you do your own thing and think about your own thoughts. Uh, it's a lovely experience and it's ancient. Dogen would build a hut and he'd sit there and write poetry. His poetry was all about being in his hut. It was very good. He'd be in the mountains in his <laughs> hut, writing poetry about his hut in the mountains. And then he'd, after a few days, he'd, he'd go home. But uh, it's a very, very good experience and rejuvenating. There's something called forest bathing that's become popular where essentially it's walking in a forest. I don't know why people had to come up with a fancy word for it. Naked? No, not at all. So it's like you're naked. The idea mm -hmm. is that when you're in a forest, you're getting much more oxygen than when you're not. Um, it's particularly if you live in a city and then you go to a forest, that does make a big difference. Again, where I am, um, there are some small woods and fields around. I'm a hundred yards from a river. So we have you know, fresh air all the time, but it's, it's turned into a thing, kind of almost a new agey thing that you go into the forest and you bathe in the oxygen, plus all the, all the energy from the trees and the rocks. Well, I actually did that a few years ago. There's a kind of a hiking trail that's a little off the beaten path here. And I went out by myself one day. It was uh, uh, just a quiet morning and I, I, there was nobody around. So I, after a while it came to me, I said, why are you wearing clothes? Why are you wearing clothes? So I had my backpack. And I said, what? Walk through this forest naked. So I took off everything except my shoes. You, you know, you need the shoes. And I started walking, and it was beautiful. I walked for miles all by myself, just me and the birds. And there's something about when you just hang in, hang out there, exposed to it all. Until this little old lady came up the path the other way, and she was a surprise to see me <laughs> as I was to, to see her. But you know, it's okay. She passed, and I continued on my way. And then I realized, oh, it's such a wonderful experience, until I realized there's a reason for clothes that has something to do with the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, ticks, all sorts of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, other than that, though, it, it really is something. You know, you got to drop the borders between you and nature. So I, I'm all for it. Naked hiking. I recommend it to you. Another thing about nature is it allows us to either think or not think. Mm. Um, Charles Darwin had uh, something next to his house in Kent that he called his thinking path. And he would go out there and he would walk back and forth when he was thinking about a problem. Mm. And I find it really interesting. Sometimes I go outside and I'm just walking here. We don't have a forest, but I'll walk between fields. And it does allow your mind to wander. But at the same time, 
I can also walk and allow my mind to just focus on the walking. Now, we've talked about walking meditation in the past, kinhin. Um, walking has those two possible options, the one where you actively think and the one where you actively try to drop thoughts. Or don't try to do anything. You just get so much into the walk that the thoughts just drop away. And so many times I've walked when I've had uh, deep personal problems. When I was sick, I, I remember I went off to the mountain and I walked. And when I started on uh, at the bottom of the mountain, I was really in, in great pain and, and, and sad. By the time I got to the end of the hike, uh, everything just made more sense uh, to me. And it was due to the mountain because the mountain teaches you strength. The mountain teaches you its resolve. It just sits there so strong, allowing whatever it is. And that's why the Zen masters built next to, for example, water. Water is good for the heart. What does water do? It meets an obstacle. It either goes around it or pushes the obstacle out of the way or goes over it. And if it cannot do that, the water just rests, but the water never complains. So that's how we should leave our, live our life. If you have an obstacle, try to go around it, try to go over it, try to push it out of the way. And if you can't, just rest. Isn't that wise? You mentioned earlier about Dogen going into a hut and writing uh, poems about a hut. Isn't that a sort of escapism that's not necessarily positive to think that isolating yourself is going to solve problems but it does solve problems there are times to be uh, away with yourself and and just to simplify and and let the wind and the the sound of the birds uh, uh speak to you uh no it, it is it, uh, it's running away from problems to find an answer to problems is, it, giving yourself some distance is often very important and that's why you know I've been camping in the modern way many times. You go out to a campground these days, and the guy brings his whole house. You know, he backs up his car, he puts out a tent, he's got the TV, he's got a refrigerator. It looks like, uh, you know, he's got electric lighting. That, no, no, this is not the way to camp. Go out. I, I'm, I'm no uh, Grizzly Adams. I'm no Mr., you know, uh, <laughs> Mr. Nature, believe me. But you, if you're going to go camping, go simple. So a lot of people involved in Zen are very avid environmentalists. Was this a case of Dogen and other great Zen masters? Do they even have the concept of environmentalism? Well, that's the thing. They didn't need to like we do today. Now, today, when our world is really feeling the effects of human intervention in industry, and we have things like climate change, uh, a lot of Buddhists have realized that, uh, that part of their practice can be to go out into the world and to try to clean it up. Uh, cleaning the water is the same as cleaning the temple windows, and helping our oceans is the same as uh, maintaining a garden. So you can expand your pra your practice into nature. But in the old days, in the days of the Buddha or Dogen, no, it just was not necessary because we did not have the footprint, the impact on nature that we do now. So frankly. Uh, I was just, you know, I just heard a scholar say, you know that Zen monasteries in the past were bad for nature. And I was kind of surprised to hear this, but it's true. The agricultural methods were something like slash and burn. They actually used a tremendous amount of wood to build the temple. And then it would burn down again and they would cut down more trees and build another temple. 
they would have to clear out and, areas. And also to heat the temple. And to heat them with the smoke. They didn't have, you know, solar panels. They were burning, burning uh, wood to heat the temple. And uh, also uh, towns would form around the temple, which would uh, increase the human footprint. Now, fortunately, the population was small, so you didn't feel the effect. But you cannot say that the old monasteries were environmentally sound. This is a modern concept. On the other hand, Dogen appreciated nature for its poetry, for its beauty, for its wisdom. But no, we cannot say in the modern sense that he was an environmentalist. They didn't need to be back then. That's a good point about appreciating nature for poetry, because if you look back at the Zen arts, um, poetry is very nature-oriented. Painting is all about nature. Mm. It's the same in Chinese arts of about the same time. But in the West, painting was more figurative, representational. It was paintings of people, whereas in Japan and China, it was paintings of the mountains and the rivers, of the of the fog over the mountains, of a, a single plant or a bird. Well, even then, I'm no expert on Chinese and Japanese art. However, I'm going to say that even then, the uh, ancient uh, painters. Uh, of China and Japan and the Zen painters tried to capture, uh, I'm putting on my professor's voice here, tried to capture a rather idealized image of nature. It wasn't the rough and wild nature. It was nature tamed. It was nature in essence. So, for example, you would have a bird that was perfectly, ideally a bird. You would have a Japanese garden that was made to capture in miniature uh, uh, the essence of nature. So uh, even then, it's just a human thing. And I, I, again, I don't think that the Japanese are basically, you know, the Japanese think that they're more into nature than a lot of Westerners in my living here. And this is a highly industrialized society that has no more appreciation uh, of nature than a guy living in Newark, New Jersey, frankly. Uh, you know, if you've been to Kawasaki, Japan, it's all factories and smokestacks. And if you go out to even the old uh, culture here in Japan, they tried to capture nature, control nature. So it's a little bit of a mis misnomer to say that the Zen people had an appreciation for nature. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. I think they wanted to tame nature too. It's just a human thing. Yes, but they did all go to the mountains to create their monasteries, even if, as you say, towns built up afterwards. They did escape the cities and want to be someplace where, what, there was less stimulation? No, that is, that's true, but you still have to make fields, and that's agriculture. Agriculture is controlling nature. You cut down the trees, you plow the dirt, uh, you plant the seeds. And then the, they had waters, but they did not want the waters to flood. So you build a dam and you put a water wheel to make a mill, to chop wood, to make wheat. This is what human beings do. Now, of course, in the old days, they did not have the technology we do. But at the same time, you cannot say that they were living 100% in harmony with nature. I'm going to say one more thing. You know, nature is not always good. I think we got this uh, with this COVID-19, which is 100% natural. 
nature is sometimes people say, oh, all natural, it's on my breakfast cereal, must be good, right? Anything that's natural is good. There's a reason human beings need to tame nature. There's a fine balance here. There's times to let nature be nature, respect nature, uh, go with the flow of nature, write poetry about nature. And there's times like uh, when you have a virus where nature is our enemy. So human beings need to keep a fine balance here. I'm not a 100% naturalist, even though I'm a Zen guy. <laughs> well, we are part of nature. Separating nature from humans um, is a false separation. And is, is our building a dam that different from, from a beaver building a dam? Well, it's just bigger. Yes, and more efficient. That's, it's just a lot bigger. Yeah. And, and beavers do a lot of damage. They do. To the natural environment. So I, I think it's a mistake for us to say that nature is always good, man is always bad. But what we need is a better balance. This is where uh, we need to be more careful. This world is our garden, and we can live here with the other species, with the plants. And sometimes we have to make our space and, and turn nature to our way. But we can do it in a way where we're not as destructive as we are. This is what we need to learn. Not that we have to be uh, go back and live like cavemen, and we don't have to live in huts and uh, uh, go back to the way things were 5,000 years ago, but we can't keep going the way we are now. We have to strike a wise middle ground in how we share with nature. Okay, with that in mind, I'm going to go out and take a walk between the fields before the sun goes down, and it's not really going to be forest bathing. What would it be? Path bathing? Field bathing? But I'll keep my clothes on. Go naked, man. I'm telling you. It's Go too naked. cold. I'll keep my clothes on. And we, we, <laughs> there are people here outside. So, okay, Jundo, where do we go from here other than naked? I, I'm going to go watch a National Geographic special. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.